right, and welcome to the Dice of Screen podcast. I'm Randy. I'm nominally Mike. Nominally, yes. Still better than allegedly Mike. Yeah, allegedly Mike was, was trying very hard not to commit, uh, but I was cornered. I had no choice. So, you know, I surrender. And welcome to our little podcast, literary two-headed Etten of Gaming Podcast. No, That's who are us. You kidding. Oh, what are you talking about? <laughs> you are too flattering. Oh, well, yes, that was a flattering episode. We're the dilapidated riverboat of gaming podcasts. <laughs> oh, yeah, back in the day. Once upon a time, it was a thing of great beauty, class and showmanship. But you're looking at the remnants of that now. Yeah. Paints peeling around the edges. Oh. <laughs> Stuck in the mud. Oh, yeah, it's best days are behind. But oh, that's hey. all right. We like to think here we're, we're something more than we're not, and we thank you for tuning in again. We've got one heck of a show for you. We're going to take the nasty plunge into four of the best role-playing games ever. So Indeed. This now, is going to be a wild ride. Look, hey, just as an opener, like the opening disclaimer is like, we're not authoritative, and we never have been. Uh, I, I think we established really early on that we don't consider ourselves the final word, the ultimate arbiters. Not That's not really our role or our perception of ourselves. But we're giving you four games we think are some of the greatest ever made. Right. And, of course, your mileage may vary. And we challenge you to come up with your own list. So let us know in the comments on our Facebook group. The Dice of Screaming, or you can, of course, let us know on the Anchor app and uh, give us your thoughts on this. So, all right. So, these are four, and the reason why we chose four, not five, not three, is because... <laughs> five is right out. That's right. And three, only to get to four, <laughs> is sufficient. Um, <laughs> because if you just came up with three, it's not too hard to come up with three of your what you consider the best RPGs of all time. We also want to challenge people to come up with a game that may not be, say, uh, groundbreaking in its entirety, but in its whole, how much it changed everything for you. Yeah, our considerations here were not just uh, one particular factor. It, it was a confluence of several things. And to, to give the short form version, uh, things that were considered were popularity. Okay, the, the love of Pete, <laughs> rampaging cat. Yes, uh, pardon. Full battle mode. Uh, <laughs> she, man, she's got a full tank of gas there. Just, ah, kill. But... I respect her enthusiasm. I have the same enthusiasm about what makes a great game. Uh, you know, like the, the popularity at the time is one factor. The well thought out nature of the rules was a factor. And they don't have to be perfect, but they did have to be good enough that, you know, a, a game that was popular that had clunky rules might still not make the list. You know? Right. Uh, a third would be the influence over the gamosphere. Uh, you know, mm -hmm. if the influence you had as a game was enormous, that kind of offsets the diminished value that you would normally have because of kind of inadequate rules or 
maybe it wasn't the most popular game, numero uno, in terms of raw sales. Uh, but if it had that kind of velvet underground impact where it was subtle, like everybody that got a copy went, I have to go forth and make a game of my own. This has inspired me, you know, like right down to the, the soles of my feet. I will never be the same again. Hey, you know what? That's also a kind of currency. That's clout. Right. So I guess in no particular, we'll just start out with our number one. And here it is, Pathfinder. The ultimate inheritor of the 3.5 empire. The Honestly, you there was some debate on this with us. Uh, 3.5 was a really amazing product. Uh, but the tragedy that befell it was like the line being abandoned by its creator. And it's Pathfinder who said, we acknowledge that this is it, like this product and this type of gameplay was ideal the way it was. And we're going to preserve that. We're going to labor lovingly to craft more games and sell more product like this. And you know what? Them plucky little kids at Paizo did just that. They kept the torch lit until D&D was ready to come back and go, Okay, I'm uh, really sorry. I, there may have been some mistakes were made. Uh, you know, like the, the mission wasn't actually accomplished. Um, maybe, maybe some deeper thought should have gone into that yeah. last product line. And, you know, I don't want to point fingers at any one particular person, but we're ready to make good. We're ready to meet you halfway as the customer. Yeah. Paizo, they get that number one slot because at the critical juncture, somebody remembered what gaming was about and a lot of other people had forgotten it. You, you can't yeah. take that away from Paizo. They, at a moment when there was this huge vulnerability that could have flushed the game right down the toilet forever. Wow. You know, here came the rescuers. Right. And, you know, we talk about uh, Pathfinder, but we're also talking about D&D. But there's so many different incarnations and things like that. That for better or worse, first edition AD&D with all its bumps and warts, still beloved. Um, I also like uh, Basic and Expert, the BNX original two booklets. And I also respect heavily the second edition. But the third edition was basically the premacy moment. And... I'll fight anybody on it. I like, and I'm currently playing uh, basic and expert right now. But I'm a guy playing a first edition campaign as a DM because I love first edition so much. And you know what? Despite that ancient grognard in me, I acknowledge the superiority right. of the 3.5 era rules in terms of incredible flexibility, ease of use, extreme accessibility for varying levels of play, and total product support. And then, inexplicably, you know, like uh, I, I guess you know, uh, WOTC got tired of winning at winning. You know, they just said, mm. "Oh man, you know, like God, I hate like good sales. I, I hate having a popular game at the like <laughs> you know, having the flagship is just exhausting. And like, how about if we just turn it down a notch? And you know, like have have we considered being the game that people don't want for a while?" Uh, you know, and so they tried that, and thank God for Paizo. 
Because yeah. that open gaming license 3.5 style system stayed afloat. And frankly, yeah, they cleaned a lot, up a lot of, us. of the problems and they kept it good. Now, later it would become a bit bloated and contrived, but we're just talking about the original Pathfinder and we're talking about the many adventure passing campaigns and adventures that were spawned out of that. Oh, which, wow, you know, uh, aside from Pathfinder's like 10 year plus like run, yeah. as uh, yeah, obviously uh, it existed alongside 4th edition and 5th edition. Uh, and during the era of 4th edition, we saw it wax into uh, its incredible popularity, outpacing uh, Wizards of the Coast's 4th edition sales, uh, a thing that no other company has ever done to D&D. Like flattening D&D, yeah, &D, like taking the number one slot away. No one else ever did that. And they did it by doing D&D &D the way players like their D&D. &D. That's all they had to do. And they understood that they should do it. But their product line is the second thing that made them great. Yeah, their oh. Adventure Pass, some of the best stuff we've ever played and read. It's really good stuff. And Pathfinder for us looms large as the number one. And as the number one game uh, of all time, it is an inheritor of D&D. And it also homages D&D without getting into all of the nitty gritty that D&D ended up dooming itself with and some of the contrivances that they inherited onto themselves, they made, before they fell to that, they made a great mark. And you can still play Pathfinder first or second edition. It still survives. It still goes. It still plays. But that first wave of that Pathfinder game is one I don't think will ever be replicated anytime soon. I mean, I would like to see it replaced and by something even better. And maybe 5th edition uh, can overcome that <coughs> as well. But we're just sticking with Pathfinder on this one, and that's our number one choice. Yeah, and it, for those who wonder why not number, you know, like edition one uh, or the, you know, uh, the very popular and very famous first edition, Honestly, it's not hostility towards it. It's not that it's no. like an inferior product or something that I, I don't love because I love it madly. But <coughs> it wins in terms of overwhelming popularity and influence, uh, but structurally unsound. It was harder to learn and like a, a tougher entry level than I think a lot of people were comfortable with. It remains confusing to this day. Yeah, points. nobody really plays D and D's AD and D first edition the way it's written. Everybody has you know ignores weapon speed, sanics, house house rules, some things here and there. Yeah, it it doesn't stand as structurally as well. And this isn't a takedown. Like I yeah. said, we're talking about the thing, you're talking about guys who are running basic and expert first edition D and D as their primary home games, and we still consider Pathfinder the number one under the gun. So that said. That controversy one. We're going to move right into number two. Yeah, the Band-Aid's off. We might as well move on. Yeah, so number two. <coughs> it's Traveler. Oh, and a this is a proud number two. Uh, there's no controversy on this one. No. It meets all the big goals we set for including something on this list. The level of its influence. Uh, at the time it emerged... Uh, it was the dawn of science fiction gaming, and they may not have been the very first science fiction-themed role-playing product that was ever released, 
but they were the most massively influential, the most supported, mm-hmm. uh, and the clearest, the simplest, a system that did not require an enormous amount of training to make use of, uh, and a then consistent product line. Wow. The things that Traveler let players do, uh, the, the width of it, the, you know, like chart out your near, like this new unknown star system as your explorers. A planet generation system for on the fly. Uh, technology levels considered carefully so that your encounters on different worlds uh, could take you to radically different experiences. Oh man, we're, we're fighting people, you know, like mounted on, uh, you know, combat trained pouncers using lances and bows and, you know, like, sure, we, we've got carbines and like a laser pistol and stuff like that, but, you know, we're horribly outnumbered and really need to learn to do first contact a little more skillfully. Asymmetrical warfare, anyone? Yeah. And, yeah. you know, shades of Empire, shades of Dune, shades of all sorts of things. And you could literally, you could do a oh. Dune campaign with Traveler. Yes, it would take some modification, but the rule system lent itself to easy manipulation. Mm. You could also do, uh, yes, a Star Wars type setting. Again, lots of work, but it could be done. Uh, bringing in the psionist, uh, you know, psionic components uh, as your Jedi-esque powers, which, of course, you, sir. you know, <laughs> that was a big consideration at the time when you consider that Dune and Star Wars uh, and even Star Trek with... Right, and uh, yep, you, you know, can Spock's. have a military-type exploration campaign via Star Trek. Just so much you could do. But standing on its own, Traveler is a unique setting to this day that still evokes that sense of wonder. You know, what a new star system could be. Or what? why do things like... Okay, you got a star-spanning empire that uses monarchy. Okay, this is the shades of Dune I'm talking about. If you were to go back to the 1400s, there's an argument to be made that you could not have the same level of civilization without feudalism or monarchical roles. You needed people because everybody was so remote to make the instant decisions right then and there. You need firm leadership for the scattered, far-flung outposts that were around, much like the Roman councils and others had done before. Yeah, I, <laughs> it's a, okay, I've beamed for instructions from home. We should have an answer in 2.5 years. Right, but we need an answer right now how to deal with this calamity. Yeah, so you know, like the, the posit at that time was that, you know, unless there was some kind of massive improvement in communications, there was nothing left uh, but a kind of regression back to a style of governance that is like historically not a great, you know, it, it's no. not a great source of equity and decency and civilization, uh, but it can hold things together long enough for something better to eventually rise. Uh, so I, I got to give it to the, the roots of science fiction, you know, like some careful. Oh yeah. Thought. They were definitely borrowing off the, the themes in Dune and uh, Isaac Asimov's uh, foundation trilogy, but we've, and we've covered those in previous podcasts, but here it is a fully laid bare traveler is a monolith of science fiction gaming. Are there ones that do it better? Are there ones that have uh, made more improvements? Yep. But still the, a system that uh, you can, you can't do better with a pair of die sixes. Yeah. No game, as I have said before, has ever achieved so much with so little, you know, 
to mm -hmm. to keep it simple and yet to provide the greatest level From of starship construction oh, to okay. planetary uh population control you name it it does it you can generate anything with a pair of size sixes and the everything's done for you it's like they <laughs> thought it out and the adventures that you can have within cover the gamut of all types of literature and fantasy and projective uh, heroic fantasy fiction it's just and i'm not just talking about swords and sorcery i'm just talking about adventure yeah uh, it, even as you look at the product line that followed, uh, as we examined the product line uh, that was a component in our pick of Pathfinder, uh, and it was a big component, okay? Uh, had they not had such a high-quality product line of impressive writing and material, I mean, it was not chump stuff. Had they not had that, they probably would not have occupied that slot. It probably right. would have gone to 3.5 D&D, uh, but... And they followed up and Traveler followed up to the variety, uh, whether it was the Kinoneer, you know, like giant ship maze in space or the prison planet or, uh, you know, exploring jungles on alien worlds. Uh, <laughs> I, so yeah, you could many... play a med team. One thing I, I recently realized is you could play a med team trying to cure a virus. Yeah on a, a far-flung outpost and have completely valid experiences and difference of characters, even if they're all med techs and scientists. Or, I mean, you may have a couple of toughies along for the ride uh, or somebody administratively competent and, you mm -hmm. know, but, but, you know, you can place a traveler team in all kinds of situations that go out of the seemingly... Uh, it sometimes seems narrow if your perception of science fiction is that it absolutely has to be uh, in line with like a tiny handful of shows. Uh, Traveler was not really restricted to just like a handful of concepts. It really embraced the entirety of the pulp era and, of course, science fiction literature to a great degree. And it did as much as possible. They really put in the overtime to give you all the options like yeah, how I many different places can properties and a, a planned property yeah it, it was an emergent property that like i think as they got into the construction of it it occurred to them man why be limited you know how much more can we throw in here <laughs> right and they didn't let <laughs> but wait there's more, more. Uh, yeah uh, so hats there off was... traveler man you just you know you want a place in my heart uh and I, there was no controversy on this second choice at all. Yeah, the, the Pathfinder one, we, we went back and forth on several itinerations of D&D, &D and we decided that, you know what, the one that did it wasn't the one that was D&D. &D. It, it took the mantle of D&D &D and ran with it. Traveler stands all on its own. It is a monolith, and I think that it deserves the place of premacy in our top four. Now we get to the third one. Now this one is where you could just be easy and this may seem lazy but i'm we're going to throw this out here our number three pick is call of cthulhu yeah okay representing for horror okay this you know, horror in the house yeah here where it took the mechanic of made the horror and trauma of what lovecraft described as the cosmic horror and made it tangible 
It had a marketed effect on your character sheet as well as your character's behavior. Not to mention on the player. <laughs> How many tables have we set? It just won't die. <laughs> I used a flamethrower and it just won't die. Oh, yeah. Cord wrap sticks of dynamite. It's still grinning at you. Yeah. Uh, why call a Cthulhu? Why not? I mean, how could you avoid it? Okay. Groundbreaking. I mean, genre specific. Uh, it opened the door for horror. It then led the charge. Uh, it resonated so greatly that most other horror style games owe a nod to it, uh, having come along considerably after it. Uh, and wow. Okay. The range. Call of Cthulhu very quickly figured out that there was only just so far you could go if you were sticking strictly to the novel material. Yeah, the Lovecraftian uh, mythos. In the Lovecraftian mythos. If you were absolutely rigid to that, then there was a great limit. And they very wisely opened the door to more. And they didn't go crazy with it, like, like hey, let's just do whatever. No, they thoughtfully kept the premise intact, uh, but built upon it and opened some wider vistas and, you know, had a wonderful sense of the themes that they should the stick theme, with. The theme, yeah. That, that is a big thing because you can play Call of Cthulhu without any of the Cthulhu mythos. You want to have werewolves on a Scottish moor? Got it. Yeah. You want to have a haunted house with a ghost? There's that. I mean, you want to just have serial killers running around murdering everybody in a town and you got to find out before they get to you there too. Yeah. Uh, nothing is off the table in the, you know, uh, they ultimately began to expand the era in which this was available, but I, I got to hand it to them. They did as much as possible, as quickly as possible and delivered a product that people still look back Pardon. on with great affection and respect. Unquestionably. Yeah, Call of Cthulhu is really a landmark game. It arose out of the basic role-playing system. And while we could also quote RuneQuest or Stormbringer or even Ringworld out of it, there, Call of Cthulhu stands on its own because when it came out, it came out with a roar. And just like its, its namesake, it's larger than life. It, oh. is, it literally catapulted the entire genre of horror fiction, of Lovecrafting fiction, back into the spotlight. People played this game, and they loved it, and they wanted more. And, and there was no substitute for it for a long time. Yeah. And other games did come out with horror. And, you know, we could mention Chill and some others. But we're going to focus right on the fact that call of cthulhu with its basic role-playing system its sanity mechanic and its ability to evoke the cosmic horror of lovecraftian themes explicitly into tangible game gameable mechanics i yeah. I, I can't think of a better game that has ever done that with material i mean there's some examples you could probably bring up out of the woodwork but our this, only controversy with this one was that there were so many games we truly love uh, and shearing them off the list like physically hurt but uh, this was not a complicated one this was yeah like this has to be here and it has to be you know very near 
There was times uh, before water. College of Sulu, and now there are only times after College of Sulu. And <laughs> what has been seen cannot be unseen. As Sandy Peterson said, once he felt like the loneliest cultist, <laughs> and now there are millions of them. <laughs> so he has Hello, succeeded Sandy. in bringing Cthulhu up yeah. from the depths, hasn't he? He has indeed. Well, now we come to number four. And this was this was a fight. You know, it took some work because there's so many as we ran the clock down. Ah, so hard to let go of some of our favorites. Right. So you may think about our top three, Pathfinder, Traveler, Call of Cthulhu, and think, okay, well, those are pretty safe. Ones. This next one, we're going to leave you in a little, a little bit of tension. We're going to take a break, and we're going to come right back with our number four pick. But this will be probably a surprise to many. So stick around, and we'll be right back. All right, well, we're back, and we've kept you in suspense long enough. It's time for our fourth of our top four role-playing games of all time. So this may come as a shock to some of you, but Vampire the Masquerade. And associated products of that line. Yeah, Werewolf the Apocalypse, uh, Mage the Ascension, uh, Race the Oblivion, and Changeling. Contextually so that people understand why that would be included. Uh, the relative simplicity of the system, mm-hmm. the considerable popularity of it at the time that it was emerging, uh, and then the lasting popularity that it enjoyed, uh, and then the influence it had over bringing so many other gamers into the fold because of it. Uh, the concept of storytelling-based gaming uh, beginning to have yep. more of a tangible presence although it is not one of my personal favorites i can back away just far enough to look at the influence it had and say you know what it it really merits this position because the influence it's had on gaming cannot be denied at a time when gaming was very nearly like going through that waning period Yep. Here came this outsider, like weird kids project. Uh, hey, you know, we, we can do a thing that is like both LARP or tabletop if you feel like it, you know, but it can go either way. And simple resolution, uh, you know, simple rule set, uh, easy to like get into uh, how to resolve what your character's abilities and strengths and weaknesses are, and then launch. And then where you guys go with it from there is really up to you okay and it took off like wildfire yeah you were given the option to play a vampire a monster character a predator a creature that is often the nemesis of many players but they turn the tables you're the vampire and the world is against you other vampires are against you no one is your friend but you may find other allies in the night yeah, the other people at the table are not necessarily your friend, your or table or room. Uh, you know the the subtle machinations uh, of intrigue and betrayal and scheme, uh, and of course for the you know game master or creative storyteller, uh, you find the complicated plots, uh, the you know, intricately woven layers of intrigue that must be unraveled in order to achieve your goal, uh, or the challenging goal 
that places everyone in the unenviable position of having to work with their erstwhile rivals to accomplish something larger. Wow. Yeah, and they made basically a game of politics into a role-playing experience with the guise of being vampires. And yes, uh, feeding and other things like that, you know, sometimes people got a little too wrapped up into that. But I think one of the core values of playing vampire was is that you played as a story and it was story over mechanics and the mechanics were easy enough to grasp and crunchy enough to be utilized so you there was a gaming aspect to it but essentially you were still working with your character to explore this dark realm of modern fantasy and that is also an element of horror mixed in there as well and i don't think there's ever been another game or game system that has done modern horror as well We've talked about Dark Conspiracy, and I will definitely agree that Dark Conspiracy is a groundbreaking game in its own right. But it kind of goes off on to its in own niche, and it didn't resonate as well as Vampire because it didn't have the reach in terms of popularity to make the big four. Uh, it does have the qualities I like in a game, though. Well, I mean, Ragnar thinks it should. You know, it was, it was, yeah, I, clearly, you know, uh, <laughs> yeah, he was, he was down for it. Uh, so that was one vote for it, but it we still lament the Dark Conspiracy did not get the attention or the popularity it deserved at the time it was released. Yeah, and I think that they did modern. They got a modern horror in an alternate reality, which is just incredible to me. But focusing back on the, the vampire aspect is layered into this is a subtle structure of not classes, but archetypes and clans. And we were having a discussion about the various types of vampires. You could be a scheming Tremere, an outsider that forced their way in through magic in ancient days, and now is a contender in the politics of the modern vampires who are seeing their numbers wane and yet needing to bring in new blood, but they do not want to break their old traditions. Yeah. Got to find somebody who will accept the old ways while becoming the future of the clan. Or you uh, could have a nefarious Ventru, who, of course, the patriarchal and solemn stoic leaders who are secretly scheming for their own survival in the night. As well as the butt-kicking Bruja, who are just combat monsters and rebels with no cause. But in there, you we also see a lot of women enter the gaming sphere from this. You know, the draw was incredible in terms of uh, once you had a game that was left less driven by constant combat and whose systemic values included something more like aesthetic uh, than just like uh, how much power gaming can I accomplish tonight? You know, yeah. how many opposed have I slain? Uh, how many XPs did I reap? You found that, you know, you drew a much wider pool of gamers, male and female alike, uh, that people who would not normally enjoy an RPG tabletop uh, suddenly found, you know, like, oh, now here's a game I do like. Uh, the, the goals are a little more nebulous. Uh, the requirements for entry are low. Uh, like that, the challenge, the hurdle of learning the system is very, like very, very low curve. Okay, you did not have to climb uphill laboriously to master this rule set. Uh, you had to have 
like an identity and a concept. And then the rest really took care of itself. <laughs> yeah. It, it, all you had to do was just basically put a, a half dozen vampires in the same room and just sit back and watch as a storyteller. They yeah. did their own stuff. It, exactly. Yeah, the greatest weapon the DM has ever held, the players. <laughs> but again, this meets the other requirement, which is follow up with product. Okay. White Wolf, uh, when they produced this, you know, I, I don't even know if they understood what was about to happen. When I don't, hit. yeah. I, I think they were like, oh, that was fun. You know, we made this little thing. And then somewhere just a little ways down the line, they're like, mother of God, fire up the presses. They need more. Uh, they found themselves besieged. And at that point, it became clear that other of these classic horror tropes deserved some treatment. And thus came Werewolf. Uh, and no, and thanks mage. came Mage. Uh, and then uh, uh, Changeling and uh, Wraith. Yeah, all of these emerged out of the enormous popularity of Vampire. And as they were continuing to support the product line, uh, you know, the, the, wow. You know, for, there were so many people, especially for Werewolf, I found that that was an immensely popular supplement uh, by comparison to the others. It, it second only to Vampire the Masquerade itself. Uh, it appealed to the other half of the vampire werewolf paradigm. You know, like the, the fans of those genres are everywhere. Pop culture and movie references have like kind of inculcated a love of both those genre tropes, the werewolf and the vampire. And this game, you know, what the folks at White Wolf delivered product for both of the above. Yeah. They, it does not surprise me that it had the influence it had. Yeah. Um, I could talk a little bit about Changeling, but I'm going to go back to the vampire thing because just marveling at the original rule book, uh, the various clans that were presented, um, you had the typical vampire uh archetype but you also had the wild kind of vampire the feral vampire oh the gangrel yep the gangrel uh the ones that kind of um identified with the bestial nature the more uh the wolf the uh bat the ability to mists and, and claws no oh, and the, the repugnant nosferatu yeah the yeah sinister and but strangely kind in their own dark way. Well, all right. Because yeah. they understood their deformity. Okay. <laughs> they truly know what it means to be an outsider. <laughs> an outsider, even amongst outsiders. But I think one of the best clans, and I'll let Mike uh, take this one, is the Toreador. Oh, well, look, let's start with the name, okay? I mean, aside from the obvious jokes about them, uh, actually... <laughs> I met Andy Warhol at a really, really chic party. There, <laughs> <laughs> dude, because you work at Hardee's. Um, aside from the, you know, popularity of Clan Toreador, uh, with pretty much anybody who did a lot of theater or art classes, mm -hmm. uh, leaving that aside, think about the origin of the name. Uh, Toreador itself refers to the bullfighting tradition in Spain. Uh, and other, you know, uh, nations, the Toreador, the character of the Toreador was a 
almost subversively feminine character uh, presented with the raging terror that was like the untrammeled masculinity of the bull, the destructive force that, you know, just crushes everything in its path. And this elegance and artistry and beauty, this pageantry emerges as the victor. You know, like at peril of its life, uh, that which is civilization, which is feminine, uh, which is beautiful and gracious, emerges the victor. It conquers the you know, like untrammeled elemental force. Uh, Toreador, for all that it's mocked, uh, its name itself is a backhanded reference to that almost mythical uh, Gilgamesh and Enkidu, oh, yeah. you know, Enkidu the wild man subdued from his crazed state by feminine wiles and comfort and gentleness. And this brings about civilization. You know, it makes him capable of being able to not destroy everything in his path. Uh, man, you know, <laughs> a small wonder it was my favorite house because that mythical implication uh, always well, gets it, me every it, time. It, it completely exemplifies the grace of the, and beauty of the vampire along with their savagery. Yeah. <laughs> uh, the, and in particular, uh, as one looks at you know a, a clan like Toreador, uh, you know, like the risk of fascination. Uh, yes. You know, the... Oh. Almost obsessive need. Yeah, that, that which is a beauty yep, ensnares. Yeah, their uh, obsessive need to find beauty in all things. Uh, can't help themselves. Oh, it's so beautiful. I mean, and then they destroy it. Yeah, well, <laughs> how dare you not turn out to be all I hoped for? Ah, I must kill and start again. Yeah, and you know, some of the names are clumsy. George Lucas. Bruja. It sounds kind of tough, but actually, Bruja means. Oh, you like my back. I'm just, I'm just gonna let you go. Episode seven. Just stop. We're talking about vampires. No, I'm sorry. I couldn't help myself. Yeah, I, no, I, I, I need to redo the first three movies. Uh, They're more appealing. <sighs> yeah. Now yeah. There's your Toreador fascination. I must destroy my creation and begin anew. Oh, cut it out. But, you know, like the name Bruja just means witch. Yeah. And doesn't have anything to do with the nature of the clan of rowdy anarchists. You know, I definitely go right with Bruja because I'm looking for a fight. And I want to make one happen, if it, even if I have to start it myself. That, yeah, perfect. Yeah. I'm here to cause trouble. This is how fight comes. My name's Trouble. Here comes Trouble. <laughs> uh, no, the game itself stayed afloat, remained popular and culturally relevant, and had a lasting following. And its success influenced other game creators. The realization that not only was there a niche, but a substantive niche for story-driven. You know, like that there is a reason you're here. There is a reason you're doing this. Uh, there is more to this than merely hack, bash, and slash. Yeah, and the consequences of failing those stories. I know set storytelling brings a lot of grognards uh, teeth on edge, but bear with me here, guys. It's about 
the consequences of your actions in role playing that make it unique. And even if you're just doing storytelling consequences, they can have very deep and lasting effects at your table and with your players. And that concept alone opened my eyes to a whole different style of playing, that the consequences couldn't come just in loss of hit points or treasure or levels, but it could come in how your character's standing and influence was in that society that they needed desperately. Because despite it all, vampires like to pretend that they're loners and, <laughs> and self-sustaining, but in reality, they need a society. Yeah, well, un unless you're, like, down there in the sewers with the Nosferatu, you know, like, eating rats. Uh, you know, that, that could be all your fate. How do you hold together this delicate web of the illusion and deceit that makes day-to-day -day life possible uh, while you feed on humankind without their suddenly noticing and intervening horrifically? How do you do it? Well, that's where society came in. That is where... And they had a subculture within a culture. And that identified a lot of the 90s culture feelings about a lot of the Gen Xers that were starting to grow up and find their way in the world. And I think that's why it resonates with us. Now, of course, there's one last thing we want to bring on about Vampire before we uh, wrap this up. And that is that Vampire has uh, a definite LARP concept. And some people see that as uh, just pretentious theater acting. I say this, whatever, as long as you're having fun, go for it. Well, yeah, I mean, you could say the same of the SCA, which predates yeah. Vampire by 30 years. Somebody just finally, you know, well, no, not 30 years, but even further back. No, 50, 60 Yeah, years. the SCA goes back forever. Uh, but here was somebody who got the notion, hey, what if we took this stand-up and acted-out template in another direction? How about if we bring that concept into now instead of like it's exclusively limited to arthurian style court play why does it have to be eh, that was a smart move that's yeah. another reason that this got included uh even if it is not yeah and vampire branched out to favorite. the dark ages to rome oh yeah and various other times and i think that shows the strength of the characterization of the game and how people latched onto that archetype and ran with it I think made a lasting mark in gaming and some can say for good or for bad, but it's back again. And I think that shows that it had more than its appeal. Also the world of darkness gets a mention here because it really encapsulated current modern horror and our world looked through the darkest of lenses and how everything was interlinked to the machinations of these otherworldly beings that we only could guess at. A wonderful time. And I think that, it was a great invention, even sometimes getting contrived or even uh, oh, turned sure. to a trope. It did at times get a little pretentious and sometimes melodramatic. Oh, but God, yes. Uh, <laughs> speaking as one who at least, you know, for a while, uh, happily LARPed his little heart out uh, whenever he could get to a convention. Uh, never really joined a firm LARP group uh, locally, I, but I loved to jump in in a game uh, at the big cons because you could always be sure there was going to be one happening and it would be somebody who was committed enough to the process to DM at a convention. So, you know, quality was not guaranteed, but it was likely, you know, it was, it was going to be entertaining to see it unfold. Uh, so yeah, ham fisted, silly, uh, 
over the top. But so, couldn't some of the elf games we play also be just Bingo. continuations of male power fantasy? Yeah. Well, I if mean, we have to turn the psychological lens, let's be careful about turning it back on ourselves. Yeah. Look, uh, you know, <laughs> I demand absolute realism in my like pointy-eared elf magic games. You know, just the dragons. Yeah. Uh, I've never taken those things seriously. You know, that just there was always a devil may care attitude like, dude, I don't care. I'll try anything. <laughs> what are you rebelling against? I don't know. What do you got? Mm. <laughs> you know? well, after for, my own heart. That was me with games. It's like, what, what you got? Yeah. And so the reason why we did these four, as you can see, the fourth one, we had a lot to talk about. We've covered the other three pretty exhaustively. In previous ones, we just wanted to talk about the highlights and why we put them there. But that's why I challenge you to come up with four. Well, we challenge you, not me. It, it's a conceptual idea. Just come up with four of your top games and really think about and, you know, compare them with your friends. It's a great conversation starter for some of the gaming groups, especially if you have some of the older crew with you. They'll obviously have their own list. Some people may go to champions or other people may even uh, hit... Uh, deadlines like we did and Shadowrun, but uh, oh, they didn't yeah. make the cut. Believe me, I mean, there were some bitter tears that, uh, you know, ran over what we had to cut away. You know, like, ah, doesn't quite make it. Ah. But it does make you appreciate the ones that didn't make the cut. So, of course, our, our uh, affectionate call-outs to Dark Conspiracy, Shadowrun, Cyberpunk. Oh, yeah, Mr. Pondsmith, we love you. And Deadlands. In Warhammer Fantasy Roleplay, yep, they're they're all great games, and this is not why saying like anything's not on this list isn't worth playing, guys. So just yeah. stop. None of that authoritative crap here, man. We're not doing that. We're just, we're just talking. All about the other games are awesome too, and believe me, I mean we played reams of them and love them still. Uh, I'm, I, I got to admit, uh, I've had such a hankering for Deadlands for the last like year or two. Mm. It's it's been one I've wanted to revisit for quite a while, but it can wait. I've got a full table. Lightning of, Jack Hanna rides again. Yeah, old Lightning Jack. But you know, I was thinking, you know, all new characters start all over again. Yeah, uh, different. Uh, play. It's a different time, man. Or even Seven Seas. You know, yeah, Seven Seas. That was Seas a lot of good times. And that's back again. Oh, is it? There's yeah, a new incarnation of Seven Seas. Chaosium picked it up and is running with it. Woot! Oh, bless you, Chaosium, you giver of so many things of goodness. Ah. Yeah, so that, well, I think that'll do it. I mean, we, we pretty much said all we had to say, and I uh, appreciate you indulging us on some vampire back looking, but make your own list. Tell us what you think. And by all means, uh, enjoy what you like, and your list is going to differ because we're all different. Yeah, yeah. I, we, we welcome difference. Uh, uh, even the difference. Exactly. <laughs> so again, just uh, in, uh, download that old Anchor app, send us a voice message you got something to say, or of course get us hold of us on the Facebook page and tell us how wrong we are. We're willing to be taking the task. On. Yeah, we're open to that. Yeah. So, all right. Well, that'll do it and wrap it up. So until next time. May, may the, the dice, dice always roll in our, our favor. favor. We're yeah. out. See ya. <laughs>